very much. Some difficult readings there. Both of those are challenging in many, many ways. Well, I'm going to uh, look a little bit at the Jeremiah reading in the same way that Chris has done, but I'm going to do it from a slightly different point of view. Jeremiah has set before the people, which is why we have his words there. They've been set before the people. This is the situation that we found ourselves in. It's a pretty damning situation. It's one where Jeremiah complains to God about the evil state of where we are. Shifting, if you like, the responsibility from himself onto God. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse, especially as the nation has turned its back on Jehovah and is worshipping idols. Why do you allow it, God? Are you just sitting on your hands? Have you turned your back on us? This is the context in which Jeremiah is speaking. It's a very, very real concern. And it soon becomes a reality. Because, you see, Judah has had a number of years of really good, fruitful time, but then they turned their back on God. They made some um, rather difficult, some rather foolish alliances. One was with Egypt, and God had specifically said, don't. Don't make alliances with Egypt, but there they went. And having made an alliance with Egypt, they became its vassal, its vassal kingdom. But then Judah, uh, Egypt itself, was conquered. God delivers his judgment. He's done his best. He's built up a thriving land. But the people have turned away. And others will come, as Jeremiah says, they will ruin my vineyard, they'll trample down my field, they'll turn my pleasant land into a desolate wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because no one cares anymore. And so it is. Egypt is defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and eventually in the late 6th century Jerusalem and its temple are destroyed and most of the inhabitants deported to Babylon. But all it needs is that small remnant of people, that small voice of people. Those who continue to be faithful, those who continue to believe, who work for a much better time, a much better place, all focused fully on God. Because there is hope. There is joy to come. 
And we all must celebrate that in our hearts and our minds and our lives in our worship. Because we know Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Well, Jeremiah, 7th century, 6th century ago, says at the end of his book, that God's love is everlasting. He promises to bring his people back from that captivity, restore them to blessing. Israel's own enemies will be defeated, his people um, will sing joyfully of God's goodness. God's love never dies. He's always constant. He always keeps his promise. And years later, of course, the people do return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city. We can follow all that within the Old Testament. We can see all that happening. But then we shift on to Jesus and beyond Jesus to Paul and Paul's letter to the Romans. And we see there new joy, new hope. There's that incredible phrase that comes through about the state of the world in his own times. That every generation, remember, suffers the same thing in its own way in its time. That creation groans. It groans in different ways. But every generation looks at its creator, looks at its world, and sees it's a place that needs to change. Creation grows. Chris has shown us quite graphically, as if we need reminding, about the, the state that we are pushing creation into, physically, with the way that we've abused the resources of the world. And so as creation grows, the nation grows, and we grow. Things are just getting worse, aren't they? Because that's what we hear all around us. Where is God in our times? Why does this happen to us? We who try to be faithful conservators and good People looking after creation. Has God given up at last? And where can we turn to? The timeless questions. It's almost as if in the last few years we've suddenly woken up to the state that we've allowed creation to get into. But we must care, we must be careful not to take Paul's words too literally, too much out of context. Where he says, we know that up to the present time all creation groans with pain. It is a pain, but it's a pain from which we can emerge into new life, new creation. 
For it is like, I'm told, the pains of childbirth. Because something new, something beautiful, comes out of those pains. But Paul is talking about new life in God's spirit. And it's an invitation, reality, for us all to bind us ourselves together rather rather than to do as what seems to be happening day after day after day in the media, rather than squabbling and apportioning blame. We should be binding ourselves together, joining together. We should be taking down the barriers which divide us, the barriers of within our own church and church life, denomination, of doctrine, practice, piety. Because we all share that one gift, the spirit which God gives us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as we cannot separate God the Creator from Jesus Christ the Son, or the Spirit of God the Father and the Son, so we cannot be divided from all that unites us with people of all races, or colour, or creeds, or culture, or orientation, in our efforts to restore creation and life into something which honours God, which restores a world fit for us to live in, fit for our children and our children's children to live in. And I just want to pick up here something that you might have heard um, in a chap called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German Christian, a German pastor, who spent his whole pastoral life, his whole ministry life, trying to change what was going on during the Second World War. And he called us quite forcefully to think about the difference between cheap grace and costly faith. Cheap faith. We can all do that. We can simply pay lip service to what we believe, how we acknowledge and confess and repent of all those sins of neglect and destruction of God's creation. We can do that. That's cheap. Anybody can do that. We can protest and bluster about environmental degradation or international commercial abuses of the land or injustices which ruin the lives of people and creatures in places which which are unseen to us. We can do that. It takes nothing. We can take just one small step approach to restoration of God's beauty and love creation. Be satisfied that we've done enough. We've done what we've been asked to do. Little cost to ourselves or our way of life. Or we can take the radical, costly, sacrificial route, which calls us to live out in truth our faith and our hope in a deeply real way. We can look beyond the hope that we can see and easily achieve and see a bigger vision, 
a bigger hope. We have a clear responsibility. We have got to face up to it. We know we've got to face up to it. We're beginning to face up to it. But we have got to continue to become more and more radical in the way that we approach the restoration of God's beautiful creation. We can't just sit back and, as that reading from Romans says, wait with patience. There's no longer time for patience. The Spirit itself makes us restless. There's an urgency to how we act to restore by faith God's spoiled creation. In those immortal words of the hymn, we have a gospel to proclaim. Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died so that we might live so that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren and all generations to come can live and have life in all its forms. That's our responsibility. And we can no longer just play at it. We've got to really, really knuckle down and act upon it. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of all comfort. We lift up those we see suffering in our hurting world. Forgive us, Lord, that we've not been attentive to their needs. Help us by your Spirit to serve those who suffer most, whether they're close to us or far away. Thank you for your church. Strengthen us today to be compassionate and courageous, a voice for the voiceless and healing hands for those in need. And may God bless us all. Amen.